Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 all serve as a little bit of a departure from the line of reasoning that the Apostle Paul was on for the first eight chapters. It's not that this doesn't connect, but as you know, if you've been with us through the study thus far, Paul saw fit to address the nation of Israel and God's plan of salvation. What of Israel and how God has handled them in the past, as we looked at in chapter 9 how he is dealing with them in the present, according to chapter 10. And now as we make our way into chapter 11, we will look at God's future dealings with Israel. So in this then, in this chapter here today, not only does Paul help us to see God's continued work and faithfulness in his chosen people, but by extension of that, he gives us a picture of his overall faithfulness and his sovereign power. What Paul reinforces in many respects here in Romans chapter 11 is the principle that he gives us in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, which tells us that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Amen? And so, uh, when things may seem grim or lost, when Things may seem like they're spinning out of control in this world in which we live in. We can look at chapters like Romans 11 and have an understanding of the fact that when God says he's going to do something, he will do it. And so even for us today who stand here and, and maybe, maybe perhaps in light of the anniversary of September 11th yesterday or other aspects of our culture that have uh, troubled you over this past week or uh, just even discouraging things that have entered into your life, we can sit back and we can say, as the great theologian Yogi Berra once said, the game isn't over until it's over. God is still at work. He is still moving. His plans and his purposes will not be thwarted. He is good to his word. And so in our study today, we will, I'll warn you, get a little more technical. We're going to dive a little deeper into some of the theological aspects of Scripture. I will tell you also here this morning that if you find yourself holding to a view other than a pre-tribulational rapture of the church and a literal millennial reign that I today might challenge some of your views. If you find yourself saying, I don't know what you just said, well then, praise the Lord, we'll, we'll go there and we'll begin to fill in some of those blanks for you. But more than even that, what what I would want for us today as we go through this chapter and we consider what God has in store yet still for the nation of Israel is to do exactly what Paul will do as he comes to the end of this chapter. And that is through much theology that is the study of God, it should give way to much doxology and that is the praise of God. Whenever we consider God and the depth of his wisdom, when we consider God and his character, when we study the word of God, we should be moved to praise. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul will do towards the end of this chapter and we should as well. And so that's my hope today that we leave here with a sense of God, you're faithful and you're worthy to be praised. Now, once again, as we then begin to look at the chapter here, we know that Paul has been dealing with Israel. 
He's been speaking of his work in them in the past, their current state, uh, as we considered last week in Romans 10. And because of the things that he has said, Paul recognizes in the way that he teaches, he recognizes that there may be a question. You may have arrived at a conclusion. That conclusion being, as he states here in chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Have you come to a place, because of the things Paul has said regarding the current state of Israel, that that God is done with his people? Again, Paul teaches this way. He anticipates a question and then he answers it. And his answer to this question is certainly not. It's a resounding no. God is not done with his nation his chosen people, Israel. So right from the beginning here, Paul supplies us with a theological truth that makes clear that God is not done with the nation of Israel. What we must understand, what I firmly believe and what we teach here at Calvary Chapel is that the church and the nation of Israel are distinctly different. They are separate. They are not one in the same. Though not as widespread as it once was, What we see here, what Paul proclaims, deals the proverbial death blow to the idea of replacement theology, which says that the church is now the recipient of the blessings that were promised to Israel. That is, that the church has replaced Israel. This has long been held uh, as a view by many. Now, you might ask yourself, why would that be the view? Why have people adopted such uh, theology and perspectives? And the answer would be, primarily to make a case that the church will go through the seven-year tribulation. That seven-year tribulation period at the end of time, that period between what I believe is the rapture of the church and his glorious second coming, which ushers in a literal 1,000-year reign upon the earth. If one takes the view that the church must go through the time of the tribulation, they encounter a problem in Scripture. That problem being that Israel is talked about and seemingly ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. And so if God is talking about the nation of Israel there during the time of tribulation, then you must do some uh, eschatological gymnastics to make that work. Either Israel is in fact around and present and distinctly different or the church has become Israel, has replaced Israel. Israel. And so the replacement theology becomes necessary for the church to go through that tribulation period, not just because the Israel is mentioned, but the church is not. So what of that? What of the church not being present during the time of the tribulation, but Israel being present? Once again, this is a necessary view if you want to see the church through the time of the tribulation. And so you see, the church, we believe, will be raptured, raptured before the tribulation. Now, there's a debate, of course, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Certainly, more of the pre-trib and mid-trib can sometimes measure up or or match up on some things, but the the, the post-tribulational view tends to be a little bit more difficult to reconcile for reasons already mentioned. So we believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Then God, during the time of the tribulation, the seven years, will do a saving work uh, in the Jewish people specifically, and yes, also Gentiles during that time. And at the end of those seven years, the millennial reign will commence there uh, upon Jesus and his glorious second coming, where then Jewish people will dwell under his rule 
for 1,000 years. Now, as I've already alluded to and mentioned a couple of times, not everyone aligns with this particular view. So why do we? Why do I? Well, because I believe that it's what the Bible says. I believe it's the most literal interpretation of the Bible that specifically doesn't require us to change the way we interpret the Bible in various places. That is, in order to look at a, in order to adopt the view of replacement theology, in order to adopt the view of a post-trib rapture, in order to adopt the view that there's not a literal millennial reign requires that you interpret scripture one way in certain parts and then change how you interpret it in others. Whereas to take it literally requires you to look at it consistently all the way through. So I said we were going to get a bit technical today. We'll come back to elements of that here in a moment. Let's return to the question that Paul has asked. Is God done with Israel? Paul says no. Paul then begins with reasons why, the first of which is a personal reason. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, clearly God is not done with the Jews because I am one. And so here Paul gives us this personal example that of course is near and dear to his heart and then he gives us a scriptural example writing in verse 2 God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel saying Lord they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life but what does the divine response say to him I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul takes us back here. The scriptural reference brings us back to 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where we have Elijah, the mighty prophet, who has had a tremendous victory over the false prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. It's really an incredible story if you're not familiar with it. Elijah there is, is, is essentially going face to face with these false prophets, 450 prophets there, and, 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 and they're squaring off against each other. And, and Elijah, with boldness that's rooted in being a prophet of the one true God, says, why don't you go, go ahead for yourself and, and pick out some bulls, I'm paraphrasing here of course, and says, we're going to sacrifice them. You go ahead, you guys take your two choice, take two choice bulls, and you go ahead and call on your God to come down and consume this offering. And of course, the prophets proceed to do all their things, and they're going through all their, their stuff and their, their rituals, and, and nothing's happening. And they're crying out, and they're ripping their clothes, and they're cutting themselves. And pretty soon, Elijah, with this same boldness and you could maybe you know, say, hey, Elijah, you're crossing the line a little bit, but he starts to mock them. He says, oh, oh, oh maybe your God's just taking a nap. Maybe he's, uh, you know, we'll just give him a little bit more time to respond. And then, of course, it's Elijah's turn. What does Elijah do? He says, we're going to go ahead and really show you what's up here. Why don't you go ahead and put some water, cover this entire sacrifice, douse it, soak it. Not just once, not just twice, three times. That'll do it. And then he begins to pray to God. And God comes down and with, with, a, with a tongue of fire just licks that entire sacrifice up. And then if it's, if, if it's not enough there, it gets a little dark. Of course, this is the Old Testament, you know, and Elijah then says, take them down to the valley. Not one of them gets away. All are going to be slaughtered. Done. Now that sounds like a pretty bold man, doesn't it? Somebody who's operating in the confidence that comes from being a prophet of the one true God of Israel. 
And even at this moment, then he sends Ahab away. He says, Ahab, you go on to Jezreel. You take a chariot. I'll catch up. Catch up. You're a prophet. You're wearing sandals. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Elijah. And, he, and it just says that he runs. He beats Ahab there. goes faster than a chariot. I don't know how that works, but I want to experience it. All these things are happening. And you, and you take a step back and you look at Elijah and you say, man, this is incredible. And then all of a sudden we find Elijah in a cave because Jezebel found out. And she sends a word and says, listen, you're going to be dead tomorrow. And all of a sudden fear comes upon Elijah. And he's hiding out in a cave. And he's crying out to God and saying, all these things that I've done, I haven't bowed my knee to the Baal, but I'm the only one left. Now he's fearing for his life. This is that moment in the cave where he goes out and hears and, and there's thunder and there's lightning and all these different things. But in the still, small voice, he finally hears from God. And God reminds him, you're not alone. He says, there's a remnant that remains. 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee. And by the way, I'm not done. I'm going to continue to move and work. Be a work of grace. Not of you, not of your work, but of grace. You see, here God says there's a remnant. There are still those who believe. And there's always a remnant. And they believe, God says, because of my grace, because I'm at work, not you. And guys, I can't help but when I look at this and think about Elijah, that it somehow doesn't sound a little bit like, a lot, like, like what we're going through in our, in our own culture today and in our own country today. Many people who say, oh Lord, all these wonderful things have happened and we've stood for truth here and we've done this and we've done this, but, but man, people, people are, are compromising and they've, they've bowed the knee to the culture and, and, and we begin to take on this idea of, oh God, I'm, I'm alone. I'm the only one left. And suddenly we go from a place of operating in boldness and in a knowledge of who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do to now we're in fear. We find ourselves sometimes in this cave crying out, God, I'm all alone and... I think God wants to remind us, I'm faithful. There is still a remnant. You know, we, can, we so often fall victim to looking at what's happening in our culture and specifically in our country as somehow an indication of what's going on around the world or that somehow it means that his, his, his church is weak or that uh, there's nobody who believes anymore and nobody who's going to stand for truth anymore. And that's simply not the case. Please do not forget that Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is always a remnant. There always will be. And even when it seems like everything around us is lost, God is not surprised. He is seated on the throne. He is continuing to unfold his plan of salvation. And nothing about the, the moments that Paul will allude to that will take place at the end of time are going to change. He will do that work. He's faithful, amen? And so he says, verse 6, "...and if by grace, then it is no longer of works." Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Translated differently here, he's saying, if it were anything else, grace would be meaningless. But salvation is a work of the Lord. And even when we consider those who are lost, we must look to God and His plan for salvation to bring us to a place where we understand He's doing it. He's working. Verse 7, he says, what then? So really, Paul's asking, what, well, what do we do with this? What, what do we do with this knowledge then? He says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. 
Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. You see, much of Israel is spiritually blind today. Unless that seems unjust to anyone, there is always a blinding of those who reject him. And so it should be for us to understand very clearly that we must be careful. Those that hear his truth and do not respond, there can come a time when you are incapable of responding any longer. Where you commit the unpardonable sin of rejecting God over and over and over again. Are you here or listening today, someone may be online or listening later on, you continue to reject the gospel. You've yet to respond. You're, you're hardening yourself. You're hardening your heart. But here's the amazing thing too, as we look at this, is that even in this, as Paul has made clear, God can use this for his glory. He can use this for the purposes of salvation. He can use this to reach others. Verse 9, and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So the Jews then, continuing in their religion and in their works-based righteousness, they've been blinded. Paul here refers to uh, the psalmist. It speaks of the table, and, and this really speaks of the blessings of God given to them Things that were good, things that, that were rooted in truth, but things that had been turned into uh, mechanisms for religion, routine, they become a trap. And Paul here is saying also, as he refers not just to present day, but he goes back to the Psalms, he says this has always been the case. This isn't just a Messiah problem, this isn't something new. This had been their pattern throughout history. And, and the blindness is true. Anybody who's been to Israel, you've been on a tour in Israel, no doubt you had the experience of going around the country with a tour guide. And for many pastors who go over especially, it's kind of this common feeling that, man, by the time we're done with this trip, my tour guide's going to get saved. There's no way they won't get saved. How can somebody who's taking you around tour after tour through the nation of Israel, taking you to all these places, delving into such biblical history, and, and seeing believers, and hearing pastors teach at these various sites, declare truth, tell the gospel, how could they not go, whoa, I, it, it all makes sense. Here's everything that happened in the Messiah. You're right, I haven't, I haven't understood it till now, but, but now I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. Every time you think it's so clear, it's so plain. Yet here these tour guides are, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, who at the end of the tour will be smiling and hey, we enjoyed it and great job. I, I, I had the opportunity to preach on the, on the, the Mount of Olives. Had the, had the temple in the background, the Temple Mount. And here I am standing, and I had everybody there. I, I, I had everybody at the beginning just kind of looking up, just like, just like the disciples and Jesus ascended into heaven, and they stood there looking up, right? And I'm thinking, what a glorious moment. We are standing on the Mount of Olives, looking up at the sky, and I'm thinking, and look, he's coming back right here. And people were, oh, amen, you know, this is great. And I had a couple of the tour guys come up to me. They were like, that was awesome. You preached on the Mount of Olives. You preached about Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And I'm thinking, it's happening. Hey, Lord, you're doing it. And, they were, and, and it, there's nothing. It was like they exclaimed it and then just moved on. No, done. No connection. I'm talking with him later on. He, this guy even, he said, no, I'm, he, he said, I'm a, a, 
uh, an agnostic Jew. I don't even, I, I'm just a Jew in practice. I don't even believe in God. And you go, what? And then you come to Scripture and you go, oh, the blindness is true. It's true. I say then, verse 11, because now you come to this place and, and you can't help but ask, what Paul's asking is, is it permanent? Is this forever? He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now this same experience, this sense of why, why, can't, why aren't you making this connection? What's going on? Why, why don't you see what I see? Now you can find yourself also going, you're blind from me. You, because of your blindness, I know. The gospel has been turned to the Gentiles. He says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So our coming to Christ, God turning the gospel to the Gentiles, ought to provoke them to jealousy. Have you ever been provoked to jealousy? And this is a tough one. We see jealousy being used in Scripture in a way where it almost seems like a good thing, right? Because most of us are trained to say, well, jealousy is bad. But in the way in which God is using it here, it's no, it's, in, it's a tactic used to draw them back. You know, sometimes, and this happens, maybe some of you experienced this when you were a, when you were a kid, you'd have, your, you'd have your silent protest about something, right? Maybe it wasn't so silent. You protested, though, because, and, and you did it thinking, this is going to get them, Right? I used the analogy earlier of, you know, maybe, maybe something didn't go your way that day. Maybe you were in a little bit of a bad mood. Maybe something about the family dynamic was frustrating you. And it's the end of, uh, end of dinner, and you think, man, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not eating dessert. Mom's bringing out dessert. I'm not eating it. Mm-mm. She made me mad today. I'm not eating dessert. And in your mind, you think, this is going to be good. This is really going to stick it to them, you know? Because what's going to happen? Oh, honey. Please eat dessert. What's, what's wrong, right? It's going to be, oh, come on. And you're thinking, yeah, they're gonna, okay, this is going to be good, right? But, but what happens instead? Everybody's just eating dessert. And they're enjoying it. They seem to be really enjoying it, and you're just sitting over there going, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It's going to work soon, right? No, you just get to sit over here in your little protest and your stubbornness while everybody else is like, oh, man, this is delicious, it's fantastic. So then what can you do? You can either decide, I'm just going to be stubborn, or I'm going to go, oh, forget it. I've been provoked to jealousy. I want that. I want what they're having. So here I go. You see, the Jews are sort of skipping dessert in protest. And God says, I want the gospel turned to the Gentiles so that we can say, God, this is so good. Praise the Lord. Oh, what we're experiencing is just wonderful in hopes that others may say, okay, forget it. I want want some of that. I can't hold back. Pastor Chuck used to talk, you know, as a granddad, these tactics are allowable when you're a grandfather, apparently. Uh, You know, he said different seasons would bring different grandchildren, you know, in terms of uh, a really good relationship. And at this particular time, one of his granddaughters, I mean, she was just a sweetheart and they had just this wonderful relationship. But something, she was, something was bothering her and he came home and he knew it and she wasn't, she was keeping her distance. And so what did, what did Pastor Chuck do? He took all the other grandkids and man, he just started loving on them. And out of the corner of his eye, he'd talk about it. He'd say, I'm looking and I'm looking. And it wasn't too long before she was like, I can't take it anymore. And she runs over and gives Pastor Chuck a big hug. Now, again, you can, you can uh, question the, 
the tactics there, but again, I think it's allowable for grandfathers. And like a good father, God has said, look, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. I want you to see. I want you to see this and to want it. But then it's important for us to ask ourselves, am I making a relationship with Jesus one that others want? Is it appealing? Is my relationship with Christ appealing to other people? Now, verse 12, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So now as Paul has been dealing with the state of Israel and beginning to, to, to delve into how God has worked in them, what he has done and the purpose for it, he now starts to bring into view this isn't going to be forever. And if God can do great things in the world through Israel's fall, if it's a great thing for the world, and if it's a, a great thing for Gentiles, how much more will it be a blessing when they recognize Jesus as Messiah? What a blessing it will be to the world. He says, for I speak, verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So here Paul focused on the lost, a heart for the lost once again. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see, there will come a day when Israel will experience a great awakening and it will be as life from the dead. That's how radical it will be to see his chosen people who for so long have been in a state of blindness begin to see and to recognize Jesus. And I believe that this will occur at the end of the great tribulation in concert with Christ's second coming. There at the beginning of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, not as bad as the second three and a half years, the temple will re be rebuilt, the sacrificial system will be reinstituted, and the Antichrist will begin to rise to power, a world leader who speaks of peace and safety, who all will follow, but three and a half years in, he will set himself up in the temple, declare himself Messiah, he will declare that he is to be worshipped, and it's in that moment that people will begin to go, oh my goodness, what have we done? And for then the next three and a half years that will start a clock for sure that they will be in a period that is called the Great Tribulation. They will suffer many things. They will flee. They will be in hiding. But at the end of those three and a half years, Jesus will come. He will come on the clouds as Revelation says. And us with him, his church with him. And in that moment they will see and they will proclaim him as Messiah. Paul says in verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. See, see, we need to not forget that we are wild branches grafted in. If you are a Gentile, you are part of a tree that you were not originally, at least from a, uh, from a uh, Jewish lineage perspective, intended to be a part of. And we must be careful that we don't boast somehow or think ourselves better because we've recognized the Messiah and they haven't. Their blindness has been our reward. 
we're fortunate to have a part in the tree at all. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. So for us to recognize that, that, that my goodness, Lord, be there, as Paul has said, their fall has been good news to me. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, but we stand in faith. And what do we stand in faith on? The root that supports us. That root is Abraham. It goes all the way back. And, and remember, when Abraham was called, when he was called to be set apart, that from him a nation was going to be chosen, that he would be a blessing not just for the Jewish people, but a blessing to all nations. That's the root that supports us. We're just the branches. And so he says, you stand by faith, but do not be haughty, but fear. So there's nothing wrong with the root of Israel, who is Abraham, who walked by faith and was set apart. And we depend on that root that God did there, that work that he did in the beginning. We stand on that by faith also, but we must do so in fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. We've got to be careful. He's saying, look, if he didn't spare the ones who were a part of this whole thing, well, then what of you? Now, when people read this, especially as you go into verse 22, and it says that otherwise you will also be cut off, Again, verse 22, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Does this mean that we can lose our salvation? That's not what's being spoken of here. It means, really, here in this context, that we have the same tendency as the Jews, and that is to lean on our own works and not on His grace. To consider ourselves special because of God's work of grace in our lives. And turn that into something that it's not. It's an exhortation not to turn Christianity into the same thing that they turned Judaism into and be cut off from a, a, a blessed relationship with God. And so this is less about eternal salvation and more about a, 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 the experience of His blessing. And, and guys, whether we want to recognize it or not, we, we are tempted regularly to do this as part of the American church to take aspects of, of uh, religion uh, and, and, and even liturgical elements and turn them into just that. It's, it's just religion. It's just practice. Or, or worse yet, to have a, a haughty and prideful spirit to somehow think. You know, it's an interesting thing that so many people tend to look at events that are happening in America and suggest that that's now the indication of, uh, of, of the end times. That what happens in the U.S. means that this is what's happening prophetically. God is a global God. Things are happening all over the world. And, and as it pertains to the United States, whether we like to recognize it or not, from an end times perspective, America isn't there. It's not there. Now, is that the product of uh, one world government coming together under a one world leader and just an insignificance in terms of the power of the U.S.? Certainly, you could say it seems to be heading that way. Is it, a, is it because there's such revival that happens in the U.S. that when the rapture happens, most of the country's gone? Well, I pray that that's the case. But we, we, need to, we need to think more globally about what's going on in his church, no differently than, than, than Elijah standing there in the cave and saying, I'm the only one. And for us to look around the country and go, oh, Lord, we're, we're, the only, we're the only church that's left. That may be true in a particular community, but the fact of the matter is, God is moving in mighty and powerful ways throughout this world. The revival that's happening in areas of Africa and in the Middle East and Asia is incredible. 
We see what's happening in Afghanistan right now, and it's heartbreaking, and obviously there's been great devastation there. Many of the people who have remained behind, who are they? They're Christians. They're missionaries who are continuing the work. So let's be mindful of what it is that we're rooted in. And how do we do this? How do we avoid this, this haughtiness, this pride that can enter in? Well, we live in fear that is in respect of God and fearing God and, and considering, as Paul says, verse 22, the goodness and the severity of God. Singing of His mercy. Considering His grace. Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In essence, as much as it may not seem this way today, if you speak with a, a, a devout Jew, salvation of the Jews will be easier than that of the Gentiles. That, that, that truly this work of putting the natural branches back in is easier than grafting a wild branch. And it will be accomplished. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Paul, Paul will sometimes give us a good indication of something that he wants us to know. He'll say, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. And typically it's in relation to things related to the end times. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know these things. Israel's blindness is only in part. It's until a certain time. It's not final. When is that time? Paul says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, what is that? Well, it's essentially when that last Gentile gets saved and God determines and says, this is it. That's, this is the moment when I'm coming for my church and when the tribulation will begin. Now, we don't know all the details of exactly what this will look like, but many agree that the fullness of the Gentiles by by the way in which the process of people getting saved happens, that there will be one person. That it will boil down to, this is the last person that God has said and He knows and He's appointed a time and He says, this is it. When will that be? I don't know. It could be today. It could be 20 years from now. I doubt that. But it could be. The fact of the matter is, we then, in this time, have been given the responsibility to continue to share the truth of the gospel with the lost, to disciple the saved, until such time as he says, here we go. Who's that last person? Maybe there's somebody that you've been praying about. The Holy Spirit's been saying, talk to them, talk to them. Maybe they're sitting here. Maybe they're watching online. If, you're, if, 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 if that last person who will, will fulfill the the the, the the fullness of the Gentiles is sitting here in this room. Let's go, right? Let's make this happen, shall we? We are to have that attitude. Once again, how will all these things unfold? We don't know. I don't know what it's all going to look like, but we are to have that attitude to, to be about preaching the gospel, seeking to save the lost in Jesus' name, knowing that there is going to come a time when God says, okay, that's it. Now we're moving forward and prophetic future and fulfillment into the time of the tribulation. And so here's some encouragement. God is still at work saving people, using you and I to reach people. We're here today. We've not yet been raptured. There's work to be done. And even though sometimes it feels like we're, we're all that's left, there are more who God says, no, they're going to come to faith. 
Even in these perilous times, more will be saved. And then Christ will come for His church, His bride. And then will commence the, the tribulation, which will be a terrible time, yet still a time where God will be at work. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So then, at the glorious second coming of Jesus, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will deliver all Israel from that which is happening in the world to them at that time. And it says here in this translation, all Israel will be saved. Your translation, some of you may have a translation that says all Israel will be delivered. I think that's a bit more accurate. It's not to say that they will all at this point uh, have the promise of eternal life with him forever, but that Israel, his people, will be awakened, they will see Jesus, and they will be delivered from that time of tribulation. Then we'll enter into the millennial reign, a literal 1,000-year reign on earth, but we know that at the end of that time, there are still some who will fall away. And so when we read in Scripture of a gathering up of the elect from the four corners of the earth, this is speaking then of his elect Israel. The church will be there with him in heaven. And so then, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience. So let's pause here for a moment. These are the things that sometimes are difficult for us to grasp, for us to try and reconcile when we see God working in such a way where it seems unjust or unfair, but then look at the character of God. As verse 32 continues, that he might have mercy on all. Rest assured, God is about the business of saving people. He desires that none should perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. His desire that none should perish does not mean that none will, but that is his heart that all would come to the saving knowledge. And so when we see or we're confronted in Scripture with truths that cause us to go, well, did God just do this for this? Or is this person just created for this? We have to be willing to take a step back and to go, look, God is sovereign. Man is responsible and has free will. Yes, God has called. He's elected. He's chosen. But yet we still respond. And, 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 and even in his... People Israel, even in the blindness, he is working in such a way in his perfect wisdom such that he can show mercy to all. And, and as we read through this, this passage here, specifically verses 28 through 32, that's what we see, mercy. That is the heart of God the Father. He is a merciful Father. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. All that God has done such that he might show mercy so that his mercy and goodness would be on display. And so then, now as we're next week, we'll get into Romans 12. It's been, a, it's been a journey, but we're almost there. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This verse that I know you have memorized by now, right? What does it say? Paul says, therefore, what's he connecting it to? Everything we've considered up to this point. In view of God's what? Mercy. You see, it's been building to this place where he says, look, if you then come to a right understanding of what a merciful God we serve, then the only reasonable response 
is for you to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That renewing comes by the washing of the water of the word of God. That you can be one who tests and proves what is that good and perfect and pleasing, acceptable will of God. You. That you could do that. That he could use you in that way. Such that between now and when he returns, he could say, here's another life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because remember, when Jesus, Jesus went and he ascended into heaven, he said, I, go that, I must go that the Holy Spirit may come. And as he builds his church, then what is his church indwelt by? The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So now he's got all of us until such time as he says, I'm taking my church all about in the world doing what? Provoking to jealousy putting a relationship with Christ on display that people would say, I want that. I need that. Paul, from the beginning of the letter, has been laying out clearly an understanding of our salvation, of our need for a Savior. And here in these last three chapters, his, his work in his chosen people, Israel. And we see this happening today. This is the other cool part is we get the perspective now of, of Israel being there, of being a nation. Since 1948, some of these passages have looked a whole lot different. Once Israel was a nation again, and of all of this, if we rightly understand it, even some of these things that are a little bit difficult to understand, we now understand why Peter writes in 1 Peter that some of Paul's words are difficult, right? If you didn't know that, Peter says that. He says, man, Paul's kind of a, a he's, it's hard to understand him sometimes, right? And we can go, amen, Peter, I get that. But, but when we do, when we seek to delve into this stuff and really consider it, what it should do is exactly what it does for Paul. It should move us to praise. And that's how he closes. And that's how we're going to close as we consider here Paul's transition from theology to doxology, from the study of God to the praise of God, this should always be the pattern. The following, what we read here from Paul, should be our response to such knowledge of God's sovereign working power. As he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul here says, look, we don't understand all of this, what it's all going to look like, how it's all going to play out. His wisdom, his knowledge, it's beyond us. Who's known the mind of the Lord? We try to be his counselor. If you don't think you try to be his counselor, just pay attention to your prayer life. Typically shows up there really clearly. How you pray. Rather, no, we need to come back to a place where you say, God, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all through you. It's all to you. It's, it, it, you, Lord, are deserving of all the glory forever because clearly you are working in such a way where your great love for us warrants great mercy, grace, and I needn't be concerned about all the, all the things that distract me. Lord, I, you're at work. You're doing it. I can trust in you. You're faithful. I need to just continue to abide in you and be obedient to you and know that you'll bring all these things to the proper completion. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for this day, for your word. Lord, uh, we're so grateful for it. And we recognize, Lord, that yes, there are things that challenge, Lord, our understanding but Lord, as we seek to know more of you, we ought to just come back, Lord, to a place of praise. We recognize how good you are, how great you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are. 
We just lift our voices to you, rest in you, and know that, Lord, you're at work. What you've begun, you'll be faithful to complete. Help us to trust in that, Lord. We keep our eyes upon you. Lord, we love you and praise you. We give you thanks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.